Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. Yeah, grab a seat where you can. There's plenty of space. We planned for less people. <laughs> Would have got more rugs. I know we just sang, this is the kingdom of heaven. And we think it's the song that says that what we sang about is the kingdom of heaven, and it is. But this room is the kingdom of heaven. Because where the presence of God is, where God resides, his kingdom is there. He's here. And his people are here. This is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you guys, but I missed being here with you all. I mean, I've loved doing summer house church. Man, Jesus, knock off this thing. Can you? I'm like, this echo ain't working for me right now. Hold on, Lord. <clears throat> I've missed you guys. Like, I love summer house church. I'm, and I'm, I've heard good reports from your leaders about how much they love it and how much they love being with you guys. But there's something special about when the people of God gather together in worship under his word, under his banner. And so while I see a lot of you on Sundays, I, this place always has a special place in my heart. So just know from our leadership team to you all, we miss you guys. And I hope you know uh, this that we put on tonight is not done by me. Um, I'm just not this creative. Um, I don't watch enough, enough HGTV to think, I didn't even know that was called pompous grass. I thought that was the thing that you drive by that looks like dead grass. Apparently, has a, imagine putting that on Amazon. It says pompous grass, thanks to my wife. So make no mistake, I am not the one to thank for this, but there is a team here at Young Adults who want you to experience Jesus. They love you, they care for you, and they'll do what they can short of killing someone for you to experience Jesus. So please remember, you are loved here and that we are a community who pursues after Jesus, but that's what we're here for. And all of these efforts that we've done here, putting on the pompous grass and the plants and the rugs and all these things, we, it's all part, and the, the summer house church study, it's all connected to what our summer series is, which is called the Upside Down Kingdom. And we got this idea not from Stranger Things, okay, because there was an upside down kingdom way before Stranger Things came around, and it's the kingdom of God. And uh, the, the title came from the greatest sermon of all time, which Jesus gave, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And over the next few months, we're going to highlight some of the major sections of Jesus' teachings. And Jesus' primary goal when he preached this message to the Jews on the mountainside was to teach everyone what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. If you want to know what Christian living looks like, I'd encourage you to open up your Bible, open up to Matthew 5. This sermon is the manifesto of Christian living. And over the next few months, as we navigate through this sermon, we're going to find that the kingdom of Jesus is best known as the upside-down kingdom. 
Because it is, it is a complete reversal of all the things this world calls normal. And let me tell you, that's a good thing. I love how theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to the message, although it may hate it at first, but this is how revival comes. And if you look at the world around you, and especially if you look at Orlando, I think the church has forgotten what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And because of that, this blurred line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the church is looking more and more like the world. I mean, over the last few years, it seems as though we've begun to reject the kingdom of God and its king because we don't think we need it. So we let our lives be guided by politics and government sanctions instead of submitting to the very will of God the Father. And we've let our emotions fill us instead of being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus becomes another add-on to our lives instead of being our all in all. And this is why I believe God wants us this summer to be in the Sermon on the Mount. Because God wants to revive his people. He wants to revive his church. He wants to revive this community. And he wants to revive this city. And that begins with this question. Do you know how desperate you are for God? Do you know how much you actually need Jesus? Because the Sermon on the Mount won't make much sense if we can't answer that question. In fact, the text for tonight won't make any sense until we recognize how desperately we need God. We've been reading the Beatitudes, which is blessed are those, blessed are those, and we've been reading it throughout this entire evening, and the Beatitudes sits at the top of the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually the introduction to the upside-down kingdom, but we're actually going to focus on just the very first three verses, just the very first Beatitudes. So open up your Bibles. Tonight we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And as we walk through tonight's text... We're going to talk about why being desperate for God is the only way for us to experience the fullness of life. I probably should have told you I'm going to tell you a story and then we'll get into it. So maybe close your Bibles if you want or leave it open. But let me tell you about the first time I met my in-laws. Anybody here is married, you understand. Anybody who's watching Chick Flick, you also understand. Uh, <laughs> Rachel and I had what you would call a COVID relationship, which means no one knew we were actually dating because everything was closed down. And the nice part about that is I didn't have to really plan any dates because we couldn't go anywhere. Um, but part of having a COVID relationship is that you don't get to enjoy some of the normal parts of dating, which is getting to meet your potentially future family uh, because obviously things were closed down. But sometime during the quarantine phase, Rachel uh, was on furlough at Disney. Uh, her parents weren't able to work, and neither could her siblings. So uh, her family rented a house for the summer on one of the inlets of Lake Wikiwachi. I actually had to look up how to spell that because I it was wrong. But Rachel invited me to come out, and so I, naturally I went because I wanted to meet her family. And I wanted to make a lasting impression on them, on her family, because, I, it, listen, it was daunting because it wasn't just her parents but it was her siblings and their spouses. And I knew at the moment that I left, they would probably have like a family powwow and I was determined to get passing grades and gain their approvals. And listen, everything was great. Like I'm, I do great with parents. Like, let me just tell you, there's never been a girl that ended up breaking up with me because I didn't, the parents didn't like me. They just didn't like me. She didn't like me. But Rachel's parents did like me. 
And so did Rachel. Rachel did like me as well. That's why we're married. And everything was going great, right? Like we went kayaking, we played board games. I made them laugh, talked a little bit about Jesus, you know, make sure they knew I was a little holy. And everything was going great. But after a while, um, her younger brother, Josh, asked me if I would like to go swimming with him. And uh, in order to go swimming with him, we needed to jump off this 10-foot dock thing. And so I said, yeah, let's do it, of course. So he jumps off, and then I jump off, and everything is fine except for the fact that I don't know how to swim, okay? So in hindsight, but also in the moment, I recognized I was a clown. I was a clown who did not know how to swim, all right? And I thought that there would be some, like, rope or ladder that I could just, like, try to get to that I can climb back up the dock to no harm. No, 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 it wasn't. The nearest dock, in fact, was a ladder, was uh, about 100 feet away. And so at this point, I probably should have asked for help. But I refused to let anyone know that I was struggling. So, so I committed to swimming as hard as possible to the nearest dock. And you know what? That didn't go anywhere. Why? Because I was swimming against the current. So I'm like going as hard as I can. And I realize I'm going nowhere with this. And at this point, I definitely should have asked for help. Wrong again. Instead, I swim towards the riverbank because I think, you know, if I can get my feet on some rocks, I can try to like, you know, nestle my way to, to, to the ladder. Yeah, <clears throat> it was full of moss. And so if you don't know anything about wet moss, it's slippery. So that now... Now I'm worried. Now, and like, I've been worried, but like now I'm worried about how embarrassing it's going to be when the headlines read, boy who doesn't know how to swim dies in river. Okay? I was embarrassed about what that could look like. And then, could you imagine like the funeral? Her parents have been like, we liked him, but the boy didn't know how to swim, you know? You dodged the bullet. And so at this point, Rachel comes on over to see how Josh and I are doing, which now that I'm thinking about it, how the heck did her brother not see me like dying in the water? He was just out there being like a merman. He didn't help me at all. And so Rachel asks if I need anything. And, and, I, and I try my best not to show that I'm practically drowning. So I'm just like kind of treading water. I'm like, yeah, babe. <laughs> I'm showing you a real life enactment, all right? Like I'm just trying here. And I'm like, you know, a noodle too would be nice. And she goes, no problem. She, so she goes, and then by the time she gets back, I am barely treading water. It doesn't look like this anymore. It's like, it's like, you know, like where I'm half breathing air, half choking in water. And so my eyes are bloodshot. She looks at me and she knows something's wrong. And so nothing, at this point, I just scream out, get me more noodles. So after about eight noodles and a life raft, I, uh, I finally get to the dock, and her brother tells everyone the story, and it's funny, and they get a good laugh, and to this day, I'm not able to live it down, and now neither will any of you. Um, <laughs> but as I look at this story, and as funny as it may be, I realized I never actually had to go through any of that. You see, what got me into the water was that I was desperate for the wrong things, I was desperate for approval, I was desperate for affection, I was desperate for respect. And what's even crazier is that even as I'm drowning in the river, it was my refusal to ask for help that kept me in there. Like I was desperate literally to live and for air, and I did everything I could do possible to avoid saying these three words, I need help. Like think about this. 
I knew I needed help. And the only reason that I was willing to ask for help was because I legitimately had no other choice. It was help or death. You see, desperation is such, a, such an interesting concept because like no one likes being associated with that word. Like when's the last time someone called you desperate and you were like, oh, stop it. You're so sweet. No, never happened. Never. No one wants to be called desperate. And more than that, no one ever wants to actually feel desperate. Because to feel desperate is a person's encounter with the reality that they need something outside of themselves to feel satisfied. In other words, desperation means you cannot give yourself all the things you need. And we fight against this all the time. But as much as we hate that reality, desperation is rather unavoidable because humanity was made to be desperate. Humanity has always been in a place of great need. Listen, from the time you are born, you are needy. You need affection, attention, and approval. You ever look at a, new, like a newborn with a newborn parents? You look, you look at them. They have no life left because their child just needs them all the time. And science has actually shown that if a baby is not given affection, they will die. You can give them all the milk and all the nutrients in the world, but without love, touch, and affection, they will die. And as you grow up, that desire for affection and attention and approval never goes away. But literally everything around us, the world around us, tells us that we're not allowed to admit we're in need. And in this cultural moment, people just aren't willing to trust anything outside of themselves because they've been failed by this world. So they say, no one can take care of me better than me. No one knows me better than I know me. Therefore, self-confidence and self-expression is the only way to master this life. But my question to you is, what happens when you can't help yourself? What do you do then? It's frustrating, right? Because you long for satisfaction, but nothing actually works out long term. So you need help, because, but you can't ask for help. And even though you want help for satisfaction, and every time you find something that works, it never lasts long enough to actually feel anything. So you live in this cycle of anxiety, unwilling to admit that you're desperate and that you need help. And this is how Jesus begins the greatest sermon of all time, by addressing this very problem. Right before we get into Matthew 5, in Matthew 4, we see that Jesus was going through Galilee. He was beginning to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand and then proceeded to start to validate the message by healing every disease and affliction among people. And the news of this naturally spread and then people began to bring all their sick and all their diseased and all their oppressed by demons, paralytics, you name it, Jesus could heal it. And then droves of people began to follow Jesus Look at how Matthew 5 begins. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus knew the kinds of people that were coming to him. He knew that these people were broken and bruised. The world around them was of no help they had been living under an oppressive empire. Their own religious leaders could not take care of them. Much of their needs were not met. No one was willing to help them, and they could not help themselves. In no better terms, these people were desperate. And they came to Jesus because they were in great need, and they were hoping that Jesus could take the desperation away. 
So imagine just all these people are in need and they come to Jesus and they heard that he can do things that no man has ever done. There would have been a great sense of anticipation in the room or in this room, but on the countryside. The air would have been electric because some of them were there because they had seen Jesus remove a demon out of their neighbor. Or some of them were there because they heard that he gave sight to a blind man, but all of them were there because they heard that Jesus helped desperate people. It says Jesus saw the crowds. And the way the Greek works out here, it indicates that it's more than just an observation. It's not that he just saw them. He saw them and was filled with compassion. He was broken for them. They were in great need, and Jesus knew he was the only one who could supply for them. And so he sees them in their great need, and what's the very first thing he says? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have to stop here because this is, this is it. This is extraordinary. Because Jesus has encapsulated in one verse what it means to be in the kingdom of God. In fact, he's practically summarized the whole Sermon on the Mount in this one statement. We have to get this verse right because if we don't get this, we won't get the rest of it. This verse is the lens in which we're meant to see this upside down kingdom. So in order to understand this beatitude and really any beatitude you'll read in the future, you have to ask yourself these three questions. What is the promise of the kingdom? Who are the people of the kingdom? And who is the provider of the kingdom? I'll repeat that for you note takers. Who are the what is the, what is the promise of the kingdom? Who are the people of the kingdom? And who is the provider of the kingdom? So what is the promise of the kingdom? Let's turn back to the beatitude once more. Blessed are. All right, we'll stop there. This is true of every beatitude. You're gonna see it. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And think about what it means to be blessed. Like how would you define it for yourselves? Because as a culture, we throw it around all the time, right? Where's that? There's that catchy song that says, feeling blessed, never stressed, got that sunshine on my Sunday best. Thomas Rhett says, I know I'm blessed watching you spin in that dress. Leave it to country music, right, to get it right for us. <laughs> or at the dinner table, you might have heard someone ask, who would like to bless our meal? Maybe you're going to take a bathroom break and you hear two coworkers chatting and one asks the other, how are you doing, Steve? And they respond, you know, Carol, I'm doing better than I deserve. I'm blessed. And while I'm somewhat joking, there's a sense of goodness attached to the word blessed. However, our modern use of the word blessed is always contingent on our circumstances. You say you're blessed if you're doing well, or for some of us, just average, because we can't always be doing well. So then we'll consider ourselves blessed. But if it falls under a certain threshold, we're not blessed. We're stressed. But the blessing that Jesus is talking about here is so much more full. In the New Testament, the word blessed means someone who is full of happiness and is highly favored. And that matches up quite nicely with our modern use of the word. But the original use of the word in the Old Testament, now this word has been used since the beginning of humanity. It, it, you'll, you'll literally find it in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. 
You see, to be blessed in the Old Testament was more than just saying, God, would you bless this? It was more than a request. It was a necessity. Nothing was more important for a Jewish person living under the kingdom of God than securing the blessing. Here's why. Because when God blesses something or someone, no one can reverse it and no curse could lift it. Regardless of the circumstances, the promise attached to the blessing will always be fulfilled. So what's this promise? What's this blessing of God? It's that you would experience a joy and satisfaction that no person or circumstance can take away. That you would experience the fullness of God right here and right now. The blessings of God are meant to supernaturally empower you and enable you to walk through this world of death and experience a kingdom full of life. Is that how you experience life today? Do you feel this? Are you, right now, as you sit here, are you experiencing a joy and satisfaction that no circumstance could take away? Are you experiencing the fullness of God right now? If you're not, it's not because he's withholding it. It's probably because we don't know that it's there. Therefore, when these crowds before Jesus heard the word blessed, They knew something beautiful and amazing was being placed before them. They knew that God, that Jesus was giving them a promise that no one could reverse. A promise that that would fill them and bring them joy. Their desperate hearts must have been jumping for joy. Because listen, God is not blind to the desperation of your situation. That's why he starts the Beatitudes with, blessed are you. He's giving us a promise that addresses our broken hearts and our broken souls. And he invites humanity to come into his kingdom so that their desperation would be met with a blessing of satisfaction. The irony of this, though, is that these same desperate people, they get off the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount. And when, the, 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 when Rome and the Pharisees and all the people of Israel start to rise up against Jesus, guess where those people are? They ditched Jesus. And I think this is where many of us struggle. We're only joyful when things are good and easy. We consider ourselves blessed only when we're happy. Therefore, when bad things happen, when hardships knock on your front door, you instantly think God has left you to yourself. So what do you do? You start to search for anything or anyone that can make you feel better because you don't want to feel desperate again. And then you come into this place and you become angry with God. How dare you not supply for me? And then we consider to deconstruct our faith because we thought the Christian walk was supposed to be better than these circumstances. But hear this truth tonight. Listen to this, what I'm about to say to you, because I think it's going to free some of you tonight. God offers blessings to his people, not so that they can get, sorry, hold on. God offers his blessings to his people so that they can get through the hardships, not so they can avoid them. Because we naturally want to avoid them. But welcome to life. We can no more avoid difficulties than we can avoid the air we breathe. But here's the double beautiful part of this. We cannot avoid suffering and hardship. 
But in the kingdom of God, you cannot avoid God's blessing. Because in the kingdom of God, you wake up blessed, you go through your day blessed, and you lay your head down blessed. This is how Jesus was able to actually accomplish his mission. It was because he knew he was blessed by the Father. He was joyful and filled at all times, even when he was made to suffer. And let me tell you, Jesus suffered a lot. This is what Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. It tells us that Jesus went to experience, as he went to experience the greatest suffering on the cross, he went to it. And you know how he went to it? With joy. What? What the heck? How? Because the grace and power that came from the blessing of God empowered him and enabled him to experience joy and satisfaction even when the circumstances were anything but positive. This is the first key part of understanding this upside-down kingdom. In the upside-down kingdom, Jesus has blessed you with promises of goodness that are tied not to your efforts but to his compassion towards And we've gotten now through the promise of God. Now we consider who are the people of God. This is what it says here again. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. It's actually interesting that Jesus says that the people of kingdom are firstly characterized by this. Because in our world, no one wants to be poor in anything. This is not a characteristic that our world praises. But Jesus says you are blessed if you are poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Being poor in spirit means you are desperate. Being poor in spirit means that you do not have it all together. Any desperate people here today? Cool. Just want to check. It means that whatever is inside of you is not good enough to fulfill and satisfy your every need. And it says these kind of people... Put your hands up. Who is, who is desperate today? Just put your hands up. Who does not have it all together? It says to you, yours is the kingdom. It says you are blessed. And the poor in spirit are blessed because it is only the poor in spirit. It is only the desperate that are positioned correctly to receive the blessings of God. Y'all hear me on this? It is not the arrogant. It is not the one who pretends to have it together. It is not the CEO. It is not the president. It is, not, it is nobody of recognition that needs the kingdom because they think they have it all. But it is those who are desperate and poor in spirit that says, I need everything that you have to offer me, God. I want to draw your attention to the screen for a moment. I don't know if you've, ever, have you spent any time thinking about what the images are. are. But I'm going to tell you. The top is a skeleton with a crown, treasures, and riches. And this is what the world is offering us. We are so afraid of being desperate that we would rather seek earthly treasure and accolades in order to mask our sense of emptiness. 
And when the reality starts to set in that we cannot find fulfillment and satisfaction on our own, we start grabbing, we just start grabbing at any momentary pleasure that we can. We start to grab our phones and put on Netflix and, and, our, and our job promotions and our sexual partners and popularity and traveling to cool destinations. Listen, you can have all of these things and you can continue to add more and more treasures, crowns, and riches, but it will never leave you feeling alive. Instead, you'll look like that. This is the best the world can give you. You'll be rich in death. But please hear me on this. You will continue to struggle in this life if you refuse to admit that you are needy. This is what it means to be poor in spirit, y'all. That you recognize that you've tried to fill your emptiness with something and realizing you don't want any of it anymore. One of our pastors here, Brady, he preached a couple weeks ago uh, similarly on a message on desperation. I thought, man, i got to find something new to say, but you know what? Instead, I just copied him. <laughs> he said this, and it's been sticking with me since. He goes, it's not that we need to become desperate for God. You already are desperate. You just need to become aware of it. Do you know how desperate you are? Do you know how desperate you are? Because this is what drove people, the thousands, to come to Jesus in the first place, is that they knew they were desperate. And they had nothing else. And let me talk again to the desperate people in the room. Y'all ready for this? It's crazy. You have the prerequisites the kingdom of God. For those who are not desperate in the room, I'm sorry. For those who are, you have the prerequisites for the kingdom of God. In this world, you have to fight to earn your place, but the upside down kingdom, you have already been slotted for heaven. And so Jesus begins the greatest sermon of Jesus begins the greatest sermon of all time by saying, blessed are you who are desperate. Blessed are you who do not have it together. Blessed are you who have nothing left to give. Blessed are you who are weak and lowly, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is meant for those who cannot help themselves. And there is no other way to enter into the kingdom of God but to be poor in spirit. I know we've grown accustomed to have to pay our way into places, but your need of God and his kingdom. Your need of God and his kingdom is the entry fee. And this is the second key part of understanding the kingdom, the upside down kingdom. Because entry into the kingdom of God is granted only to those who recognize how much they are in need of God. And as you sit here listening, watching me get choked up, you might be wondering, why do I need God? Have any of your uh, dashboard, lights, uh, dashboard lights come on your car before? Listen, you're young adults. I know some of y'all are driving a 2004. Like, you know, it's perpetually on. Like, someday you're just driving down 50 and your check engine light comes on. And like, what do you do? Well, 
Rip, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you bring it to your mechanic, right? You bring it to your mechanic. You're not pulling off on 50 and being like, I got this. If you do, that's impressive, but I don't think that's you. They look, so the, the mechanic, they look at the car, engine, and they do their mechanic thing, and they charge you a six-pack and a right to your firstborn child because it's just be that expensive. <laughs> And you're inclined to do it. You don't even have kids. You're not even dating anybody. You're like, yeah, you can have my first kid. Go ahead. You're inclined to do it because, listen, you need a car to live in Orlando. And you have no idea how to fix it. Even if you did know, you would still need the parts and equipment that you don't have access to. You see, just because you know there's a problem doesn't mean you can fix your problem. Y'all heard that? Just because you know there's a problem doesn't mean you can fix it. And this is true of us. Being poor in spirit is like the check engine light coming on. We recognize that there's a problem and that we need help. The funny thing is, is that we think we come to this conversation with God with something of substance to offer him. Do you know the only thing you bring to the conversation? Think for a moment what you can offer God in this moment. Think about the things that you've actually tried to offer him. Lord, I'm going to pray some more today. I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. for this week. I'm hoping maybe next week, and then you don't do it at all. Lord, I, I, I know I need to fast. So I'm, I'm, what do I fast? I'll give up Instagram for like a week. All you bring to God is your need. That's it. Because our problem is that we are in a state of neediness. But recognizing you're in that position doesn't actually do anything for you. So what's your only option? You need a provider. You need a helper. You need a fixer. That's why the last question is, who is the provider of the kingdom? And in this upside-down kingdom, God is the provider. This is what made the teachings of Jesus so beautiful because the people came in the thousands because they literally didn't have anything else to offer him. And Jesus says, it's okay. You're not the one who needed the supply. It's me. And this is who God has always been. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the, the, the names of God, there are many in the Old Testament, but the one, one of them that I love is Jehovah Jireh which means the Lord will provide. You see, God, I don't know if you know this because I think a lot of us act like he, like he doesn't like to provide, but God delights in providing for his people because that is who he is. It's not something that he adds on or that he does. He is the God who provides. And the way he provides is by coming to us in our desperation and saying, come, what do you need? I'll provide. And the struggle that we have with this is that we think we just need God for the big things. We need him to help us to decide where we're moving next. What job do I take next? We need him to convince our ex to take us back. We need him to keep our parents from getting divorced or we need him to help out Grammy. She's got cancer and one bum leg and Lord, we need you to help her. But what we have to remember is that we need God for everything. For everything. 
That's why in the Old Testament, whenever God declared a blessing over somebody, he gave the blessing and then he said, I am with you. Yes, he did. In Genesis 26, God says to Abraham, fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. In Isaiah 41, God says to Israel, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. In Jeremiah 1.8, God says, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Our needs will change, and our circumstances may fluctuate, but our God never leaves. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi, and he says this in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you want to just for a moment try to quantify the riches of God? They're endless. This means that God can and will provide for your every need, and trust me, we need him for that. You need God for everything. The fact that you got up this morning is according to God's endless riches. The fact that you're breathing in this moment is according to God's endless riches. The fact that you can feel the humidity as much as it sucks on your skin is according to God's endless riches. We just don't tend to see life like this because we think we need to come to God with something that he needs from us. But Jesus is telling us here in this beatitude that he comes to us with something we need because we have nothing to offer him. And what we desperately need is life and the ability to experience it. This is the ultimate invitation of the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are blessed because they are aware of their need for God and their needs will be met. So why do we need God? Because he's the only one who can endlessly supply for our endless needs. Can we change the image? This is the kingdom of heaven. In the upside down kingdom, we are called to be beggars. And that might scare some of you. That may anger some of you. But it's meant to be a comfort to us all. Because being rich in death is garbage compared to being poor in spirit. Because only the poor in spirit receive the kingdom and all the riches and all the blessings of Jesus. Because God is the provider of the kingdom. and He takes great joy in providing for your every need. So we get to come to Jesus right now. Like, don't worry about trying to bring something to the table because Jesus is the one who provides. I'd encourage you to just leave your riches behind tonight. Leave the treasures on the skeletons. Trust me, they need it. And instead, I invite you to come to Jesus and place your hands out. Tell him you have nothing and God will give you everything you need. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Do you know how desperate you are yet? Do you know how much you need him? I remember, I've been a Christian for a while now. I grew up in church, but it really wasn't until college where I came to saving faith in Christ. And so I've been a disciple of Jesus for about a decade now. And I remember sitting with Namit, who, who, who Jesus used in college to bring me 
to faith. And, and we were in the library, and, you know, I had never really openly confessed my sins to anybody, and it was finals week. And, you know, there's something about finals week that really breaks your soul. Um, and maybe Jesus used that. I don't know. And, but, but I had been drowning for a long time. And the meat was constantly asking me if I'd like to get out of the water, but I was convinced that I could get myself out. But there we were in the library. I remember it. Most people were gone. It was the evening. I was exhausted. I closed my books, and I just looked at him. And for whatever reason, I looked him in the eye, and I told him all the things that I had been hiding. I was desperate, and I didn't know what else to do in my life. But in that moment of confession, the meat pointed me to Jesus. I didn't have anything together at that point. In fact, I'd actually never felt more lost than when I was in college. Honestly, I didn't have much going for me. I was really awkward in high school. I had tremendous daddy issues. I was constantly chasing girls. I was dying for love and affection. I wanted to mean something. And this is what I brought Jesus. And he said, welcome home. Your desperation is welcome here. If I'm going to be honest, since then, I haven't. I've rarely felt that desperate. You might think, I'm telling you this because once you meet Jesus, you'll never be desperate again, but I'd be lying to you. I'm telling you this story because the story of Jesus, the story of our relationship with Jesus is one where we will always be desperate. Because being desperate for God gets us into the kingdom, but it's also how we're meant to be postured forever in the kingdom. We will literally need Jesus for everything, for all the days of our lives. And if I'm being honest, I don't really see my need for Jesus most times. I treated Jesus like he was like a one-time event back in the library of Hunter College. It got me into the kingdom, so why would I need him anymore? But I do need him. I'm the beggar. Listen, if you settle for God's blessings, you're always going to love the kingdom more than the king, but the kingdom is only as good as it is because of the king. That's Jesus. Let me tell you, man, like, I, I was, as I was writing this message, I was really frustrated. Like, I was trying to write a message on desperation, and I didn't feel like I had much to say about it. Like, I couldn't get anything down on paper. And I'd be, listen, I've been thinking about this message for months. And I've really felt God guiding me to, to this text that we're covering tonight. And I remember telling Rachel how excited I was to write this message. And I blocked off time on Monday to write, and, and nothing. Nothing came out of me. I kept repeating the same line over and over. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, like when you're writing a paper and you have no idea what to write, so you just read the, sen the same sentence over and over and over. It's like SpongeBob when he's in, he's in boating school. What I learned in boating school was, what I learned in boating school is, and I remember looking at this text, and I began to yell at my computer, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like somehow if I yelled it hard enough, something would just pop out, I'd probably pop a hernia instead, but blessed are the poor in spirit. And at some point, and it must have been late because Rachel didn't come into the room, which, which means she was either sleeping or she was like, I'm definitely not going to that room. <laughs> I don't blame her. But at some point, as I, be, as I began to just repeat these lines over and over and over again, I said, I just began to cry. 
I literally yelled, God, if you do not give me these words, nothing's going to come out of me. And Obi kindly texted me this verse. 2 Corinthians 12, 19. Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus, shared an intimate relationship with God, and he wrote this to the church in Corinth. He says, but Jesus said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response was this, therefore I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What I love most about this verse is that where you are weak, the power of Christ fills you. Like, think about this for a moment. Jesus has already given you the kingdom. He has already given you the blessing. He's already given you his presence. And then he says, I'm going to give you my power. And this is a call for you right now. I'm making this call to you right now to become aware of how desperate you are for God. Because in your desperation, you will be filled to the brim with life. You will be filled with joy and satisfaction that no person or circumstance can take away. You will be free to boast about your weaknesses knowing that God will always provide for you. You know how desperate you are yet? When we finally answer these three questions of who's provider and all these other things, this is the picture of the kingdom that we get. The kingdom of God looks like a bunch of people who don't have it together, carried and led by Jesus who holds all things together. So let me ask you this question one last time. Maybe in a different way. What is scaring you so much that you're unwilling to admit that you're in need. I mean, God has held nothing back from us. So why do we withhold ourselves from him? We're gonna do something together right now. We're gonna posture ourselves like the beggar. And before we do, I'm gonna explain why. One, because we need to be filled again with the sense of desperation. It's only in this that we recognize and position ourselves to receive the blessings of God. Like, remember the crowds that Jesus was talking to? The ones who came to him were not the ones who had it together. It was those who were desperate. Funny thing is, no one has it together. And we never stop coming to God in desperation. The second reason is that we need to be filled again with the power of God and his kingdom. As Paul said, we boast in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ would rest upon us and we need this power, but so does every square inch of the places that we walk. Because it is in that that we're able to desperately and fervently, humbly invite people to know Jesus. It is through the power of his gospel. And lastly, it's because I believe physical postures often helps our hearts get ready for a spiritual posture. So if you're here tonight, and you are desperate. You just put your hands out and just tell him that. Jesus, I'm desperate for you. Give him your baggage and allow him to shower you with his love and mercy. And if you're here tonight and you don't feel like you need Jesus, you can tell Jesus that. Allow him to show you how much better he is than the riches you have. 
give you a moment. I'm going to stop you. Sorry if I've, I know some of you are experiencing freedom. We're about to move into a response time and, and you'll be able to ponder more on this. Let me just offer you this last word. To those who are desperate, blessed are you for the kingdom of God is yours. Welcome home, desperate people. Welcome home. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use the message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.